Good. Hey everybody, welcome to Home Latte. My name is Scott Free, and thank you very much. And this is a twice a month queer performance series. And tonight we have performing Derek Clifton. Let's hear it for Derek. And we also have performing Kim Schaefer. And there's a couple of rules on the latte, it's kind of basic, but um, I do pass around the IKEA tip jar, and proceeds are split between the artists. I take zero, and uh, the cafe takes zero. So we do kind of like it, like it when you eat and drink up. If you want to get food, you just order next door in the salon, and they'll bring it over. Or if you want drinks, you just go to the bar and get drinks. And those are the basic rules. Um, let's see. Um, I'm gonna just do one song. I actually have a show coming up um, uh, April 14th at Wishbone North and LNK. She's a really great folk artist. She's performing also, and we're both performing with Jenny Urban, who's a percussionist that I've worked with for years. So, so that's April 14th, and this is, you know, my. Uh, one of my philosophy songs, but I'm not really a deep thinker, so here we go.
tonight. Woo! Great. Awesome. I'm gonna set a stopwatch for myself just so that I have some sense of time. I don't wanna do make what they say in the church because grew up as a child of two ministers, not just one. More on that later, but one of the things the ministers would always say is, don't make people happy twice. Happy you sit up, and happy you set your ass down. Yeah. So, the ass was like my little sprinkle onto it. Um, so I was doing that, but just to introduce myself really quickly, I'm Derek Clifton. I'm a writer and journalist and communicator focusing on the intersections of identity, culture, public affairs, and social justice issues. So I've written very extensively about uh, race in America, gender, identity, LGBT issues, um, various uh, feminist movements, uh, black liberation movements, you name it, I've probably covered it. And a lot of the essays and commentary I've been known for have been in many ways connected to the issues, but in other ways they've been quite autobiographical and have connected the personal to the political, which if you know feminists, Language and movements, you know the personal political is a very, very salient social justice mantra because all politics is local and all politics are connected to us as people. So that's the perspective I write from. That's a phone that has a protective case on it. So if it drops, I don't care. It also has insurance, like this laptop. So if it falls, oh well, it's an object. That's life. Oh, oh, oh. Well, oh, shit. Well, life happened. Yeah, life happened, right? <laughs> um, uh, no, you should be fine. Um, we're gonna we're gonna do this another way. Um, yeah, we'll make it work. Have to just steady, steady the waters a bit. Um, <laughs> uh, God, I love being human. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, so um, so yeah, just to continue. Yeah, so one of the things I've been doing a lot more recently is, aside from freelancing for outlets like NBC, The Guardian, The Root. And then I wrapped column at the Chicago Reader last year on the Indian culture, won five local and national awards. A column I wrote mostly during, starting during the 2016 election season, beginning with, unfortunately, the, the shooting videotape reveal from uh, Laquan McDonald being gunned down by the police, uh, continuing through to Trump's inauguration and covering the many communities in Chicago, Illinois, and around the country that uh, we're fighting for justice and freedom uh, for all people. So um, one of the things that I have started in the last couple of years, uh, stemming from me being a graduate student at Medill of School of Journalism at Northwestern, is uh, writing a book based on those essays. Um, and you know, it's my memoir, uh, but it's also cultural commentary, uh, because I always find ways to connect what's going on in my life to how I approach various social issues. So I'm gonna give you all some early material that has been adapted uh, from my forthcoming book, which is in progress. <laughs> I have to still get to an agent um, you know, in a couple weeks, but uh, things are looking good and I'm really excited about it. Uh, but for tonight, um, I'm gonna go kind of back to my roots um, as part of the storytelling. And you know, really, and as I said earlier, you know, being the child of two ministers, I had to, kind of toe the line a bit, especially as soon as I knew at an early age that I was gay. Um, you know, like I said earlier, I'm a son of two preacher's kids, or a child of two preacher's kids, and I don't know if any of you know the stereotype of a PK, or are there any other PKs here? 
All right. So what's the PK stereotype? <laughs> Tell me. But you just have to always be a good example to Exactly. Uh, so you kind of are a pageant queen on Sundays, you know, <laughs> look innocent. You don't get to dress like the other kids. You have to snazz it up because you're representing not just yourself, but the minister or whoever else. And then behind the scenes, you're the worst behaved. So being a double PK. Uh, yeah, you're going to hear about some of that rapscallion type behavior, including a little incident in the Catholic school stairwell. Only great. Um, but I'm going to say that for the story. Um, so what I like to do is, you know, just find a way to grab my work. And, you know, some moments are funny from the story. Some moments are sad. It's a dramedy. That's life, right? <laughs> um, it's not a binary comedy or drama type thing. Uh, just as no, it's not really a gender or sexuality binary. That's some Western invented shit to control our bodies and our labor um, <laughs> through systems, right? Uh, so my work is about finding a way for personal and collective freedom, just to be us and do us. Um, so the Baptist church tradition, I'm going to start with a song. Um, usually devotion service starts out, you know, any Sunday, Bible study, choir, concert, recital program, usually a song, a little bit of prayer, maybe an announcement or two, and then the word from the red, right? But we're just going to stick to the song part. Uh, it's got all those other parts. I don't want to make fun of Sunday prayer or do a parody like Tyler Perry. You know, I may end up driving out in this fog and slip on a banana because one of the ancestors got pissed off. So uh, I'm not trying to get struck down by lightning. So I'm going to do what I do. Um, I have a special musical instrument up here with me, um, a, a tambourine. Um, <laughs> I'm going to get it. But the reason why tambourine is so significant, and I want to explain it to you all, is because, you know, tambourine player, uh, it's a bit of a fraught <laughs> term in church, but I was given my first tambourine by uh, my evangelist cousin. I was like five, uh, rest her soul. I only learned last year she was married to a gay man for quite some time. But the irony is, she gifted me this tambourine. I played it freely. I didn't know I was gay when I got the tambourine. And then when I got older, I learned what the tambourine player trope was, which I'll just give it an explanation to you. They'll say, oh, someone, that guy's a tambourine player. Oh, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, so you get it. <laughs> Shimmy. Anyway, so yeah, I'm a tambourine player for sure, but... Um, so the song I'm going to sing is, you know, I, I like to ground myself in the period uh, with the stories I tell, and I usually do that through singing. It's how I create my content, because um, music was a large part of how I coped. I, I sang in church, but once it was clear that I couldn't participate in church the same way because it was gay, I had to find other ways to have an outlet while I was reconciling my faith and my sexuality. It's going to be a large part of tonight's story, but some other parts um, that are not exactly PG-13, but... Um, how many of you are familiar with Natalie Brulia? So you probably know the song Torn um, from all those film soundtracks, but um, she has another song uh, from the Counting Down the Days album, and it was an album released 2005. Uh, was, had to hear it during like a 16-hour flight from LA to Sydney for an exchange trip that changed my life and helped me come out uh, in my later high school years. But wasn't sold in the US, only in Australia. I brought it back at car copies of my favorite albums, and this song is a very meaningful one, so I'm going to sing a bit of it for you. And I'm just going to do it acoustic, acapella style, tambourine, and the church we say they're coming in their own way. In other words, they may not have the high production value, may not have all the instrumentation, but they're going to give you a song from the heart. So this one's called On The Run.
I'm looking for a way to calm these voices in my head. Staring at the ceiling, I don't want to leave this bed. I'm on the run. I'm on the run again. And I don't know which way is left And there's no point in not being right So I hold my breath till the morning Till I see the light I'm on the run I'm on the run again from me I'm drowning in these feelings and it's scaring me to death all this bad confusion so many things I could have said I'm on the run I'm on the run again And I don't know which way is left And there's no point in not being right So I hold my breath till the morning Till I see the light So so many times you're out there waiting I should have known you're out there waiting And I don't know which way is left And there's no point in not being right So I hold my breath till the morning Till I see the light I'm on the run Oh, I'm on the run again From me So that was no Beyonce or Jay-Z, and it's not the On The Run 2 tour. I don't have all the big monitors, everything else, but you get the emotion, right? Um, yeah, but in many ways, the song's meaningful because sometimes, you know, things happen in our lives, and instead of dealing with them directly, you find other ways to kind of drown it out, put on the back burner, find ways not to be able to just cope, numb ourselves. So that's why that song's so meaningful, because in so many ways, we're on the one from ourselves, and really, we should be running to ourselves, and that's the point of... The book, the stories I tell. So, I'm gonna start with the story that begins in around 2002, 2003. I'm 14 in eighth grade. Um, it's around the time middle school that I'm starting to realize, you know, playing on the basketball team that uh, I'm less interested in playing basketball. Actually, I was forced to. I want to play tennis, but Dad thought that was too much of a girly sport. So. What up doing? Yeah, I know, right? Like running for like three hours, hitting a ball back and forth and grunting and sweating and having to pick shorts out your ass and somehow girly, right? Um, hello, Rafael Nadal. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, I was first playing basketball and hated it. 
But I realized I'm not into these cute cheerleaders. I'm into the point guard. Oh. And I didn't know what to do with that as a preacher's kid. So I had to find ways to be subversive um, and come to terms with who I am, who I was, in ways that did not involve, of course, uh, compromising my pageant queen PK status. Um, so I don't like to do recitations. What I like to do is just kind of sermonize a bit. Not to be preachy, but just so what comes from the heart comes from the heart. And there's a structure to it, and there's a payoff. But <laughs> I don't know what that was, but. <laughs> so, so yeah, so 14 years old, I'm, you know, just this kid pretty scrawny, nerdy. I was more into chess, politics, playing Jeopardy in the weakest link than I was, chasing after girls, going to juke parties where, you know, girls be twerking on all these guys and stuff. I'm like, I'm not interested in that. Can I, can I just play like Nora Jones and go to sleep? Like, that was the kind of kid I was, right? So everybody already thought it was weird. I would get all these jokes walking down the hallway. Uh, if I wore FUBU to school, they're like, when you wear it, Derek, it's not FUBU, it's Gaybu. Um, yeah, Boo Boo was a brand for us by us. It's like a Def Jam founded thing, so a lot of meaning there. But what <laughs> what I had to what I had to deal with every day walking down the halls of a Catholic school in the South Side that was mostly diverse, but by this time the school becomes ninety five percent black. White flight takes over the neighborhood. Um, wasn't what I knew it to be, and my friend circle dwindled down, and all of a sudden I found myself very lonely and isolated, trying to come to terms with what it meant uh, to be a gay kid who also didn't necessarily conform to the gender expectations of what it meant to be a young black male on the south side of Chicago. So that meant I had to find ways to put on an act, wear the street clothes, deeper my voice on the phone so knowing my dad's friends would call and say, your son sounds more like your wife than like a 14-year-old young man. Or being told because my butt was too big that I needed to walk up straighter so it looked like I was swishing my hips, as some of the kids and adults accuse me of doing, and I pretended like girls. So here's what ended up happening. I had three cousins that lived upstairs with, so I was an only kid, uh, but you know, black middle class guilt was a thing. So, I uh, grew up pretty comfortable, but I had a lot of family members who didn't. So I shared my parents, and uh, one of the things that I always had to contend with my cousins about, they were like my big brothers in ways, was their not-so-nice views on people who were gay or who they thought were sissies. So there was a kid they went to grammar school with. Uh, we'll call him John for, the, for all sake and purposes. I want to protect his identity. We'll call him John. He had, like... He's a tall, chocolate-skinned guy, beefy build, wore duck, like bifocals, was usually very quiet, but as the story was told during in my years, he got kicked out of their public school for apparently touching a guy in the bathroom, and they ended up being a big fight. He was accused of that, but that didn't happen. But they were like, oh, he's gay, and I don't like him. So accused him of something bad, he kicks the kid's ass, just the quiet type that like, Pff. so he got kicked out and sent to my school, right? So my cousins were warning me like, oh, that kid's reputation precedes him. Don't hang out with that sissy. You know, he's not somebody you want to be seen with. You need to protect your reputation. I'm like thinking back in my head, I'm 14. I don't have a rep yet. <laughs> right. So 
Anyway, they're thinking, I'm like, oh, okay, man, that's what's up. You know, I ain't gonna fuck with that faggot. I'm good. You know, put on my little act, act rough. Back in my head, I'm thinking, ooh, he's kind of cute. <laughs> so, enter fall of my eighth grade year. I'm pretty much confirmed to be class valedictorian, got into all the fucking Roman high schools. Like, I was set. I was pretty happy. Um, especially since I didn't come from one of those rich feeder schools. I had to just come from my neighborhood and just do my thing. Uh, but that's all the time I met this guy. And kind of knows him in class, he's more quiet kind of just floating under the radar. Uh, but we were assigned as book buddies by my English teacher. Uh, her policy was if you miss a class, you're not gonna get off easy. Someone who lives the closest to you in the class is going to bring your books home that are already home with the list of all the assignments you need. So guess who lived the closest to me of anybody in the class? John, he was a block away, literally behind the alley. Remember that detail, behind the alley. So, so um, yeah, even before he ever, I ever had an apps for bring my books home, uh, which sometimes I was absent on purpose, um, I, and we ended up volunteering, helping out the parents, you know, who were doing the cooking of the school lunches. Uh, there were two soccer moms who, in their spare time, would just receive the lunches from the Catholic school lunch program, of course, during Lent. We had no spaghetti, only fish, um, which, yeah. Some of y'all who practice Catholicism or Christianity know that feel. Um, but uh, one of the things we had to do was just bring the trays down, two stories down to the basement, make sure they were refrigerated. We got to get out of class early and we got free lunch, which is to my ears because I was like a growing kid and I wanted those double nachos, right? <laughs> but I also wanted some beef. So, <laughs> Uh, we both end up signed up, and during like a, a side moment, I was like, my cousin said you were gay, and I don't know if that's true or not, but is it the story true of how you got over at this school? Did you really touch some guy kid in the bathroom? Well, guy his age, but at this point, we're like teenagers, right? So he's like, whatever. He was trying to talk past, and he's like, you know, I heard you were gay too. Everybody here talks about how they think you're nerdy and gay and you don't like boy stuff. He's like, so are you gay? I'm like, I asked first. He goes, <laughs> yeah. So he goes, um, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'll only tell if you'll tell. I was like, okay, we'll play that game. So we passed notes in math class um, where, you know, Sister Gina was like a nun from Sri Lanka. She didn't pay attention to shit. She's make wants to make sure you get your algebra lessons. Anyway, we passed notes. He says he's bisexual. I say I'm bisexual. <laughs> Which, shout out to bi folks, I don't believe in bi erasure, using that intermediary identity bullshit. But that's the frame of mind we had as 14 year olds in 2003. We thought, oh, I'm getting it. I don't even need this anymore. <laughs> um, oh, crap. Um, I'm just a class tonight, aren't I? I'm like damn sure equipment, Scott. No, I'm going to move this over and I'm gonna put this down. Um, Anyway, so let's continue. Um, so, where were we? So back to that moment. So we were like, oh, so how do I know if you're not lying just to get some information out of me so you can go tell everybody and embarrass me? So there was a bit of 
<laughs> conversation and an understanding we had where one of the days outside of the, once we finished lunch, volunteering early, breaking down all the lunch trays, we would meet in the vacant stairwell on the underutilized part of the school and um, make out, all right? So we set a time and a place. Of course, I was terrified. I'm like, shit, what if a teacher comes over here instead of him? And he like rats me out and I'm looking like a fucking fool. Uh, but that's not what happened. He beat me there and he was waiting. And um, let's just say innocent preacher's kid was not an innocent preacher's kid anymore after that experience. Um, and um, there was some below the belt stuff that happened. I'll leave it at that. But in the middle of all of this, and I have my school books with me, a Dominican nun named Sister Chen Wei starts coming down the stairs, sits two flights. And I just overheard her voice. She had a very soft, very mild spoken, but very, she, she loved reaching out to all the students. She was like, you know, keep up the good work, be encouraged. So I, I hear her voice carrying, I'm like, oh shit. So we had to have a diversion. We were too late in the game to run. So I had to pretend like I said, I'm giving you math lessons. So everybody thought I was a smarty pants and snooty, so I was like, I'm, I'm helping you. So she came down here, she's like, oh, how are you kids doing? Oh, oh, you're looking at math lessons. I said, yes, Sister Chen Wei, I'm helping John out today. <laughs> you know, he needs some help, he's kind of falling. Oh, that is so, I was so happy to see the children helping each other. That is what our Catholic community is all about. God bless you. God bless you too, Sister Chen Wei. You're like, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, bye. That preacher's kid wave again. And then she got out of there and we kept going to town. So, next couple weeks, book buddy, right? I ended up getting sick. You know, just want to play up before a day, stay home. But he had to bring my books home. So, I told him... Once he got to the front door, I said, my cousins, last time they saw you at the house, walking down the street, you weren't even in school yet, they threw rocks at you. Don't come to the front door, come to the back. So that's what he did. Knocked on the back door, my parents wouldn't get on for two more hours. And so the book buddy kind of became a hookup buddy uh, for a good amount of time. And one of the times he uh, left a bit of a carpet burn on the neck. And I came home from school and my mom like noticed it like lingering down there. And she's like, what's that? Did you get hurt at school? I said, yeah, mom, I fell on the playground. I got a bit of like a rug burn. There was like some gravelly area. Oh, that doesn't look so good. Maybe we should take you to the hospital. You think we should take you to the hospital? I'm like, yeah, let's go. Let's go in urgent care. I'm thinking she's gonna fall for this, right? Like I was looking everywhere at first, like looking for concealer, mascara, anything, and I just could not get it to stick. I didn't know what I was doing. I was like cold compressing everything I could find on the internet to like try to get rid of it. Nope, was done. So we get to the front door and I turn around, pop! You think I don't know what a hickey is, young man? I said, what? Who put that on your neck? And I was like, uh, it was Kendra. <laughs> oh, she did that? Why you let her do it? Because I wanted money for the candy sale the student council was throwing. <laughs> she said she'd give me some money if I kissed her, so I did. You better not be doing that no more, you hear me? 
You hear me? Yes, ma'am. John did it. So, a couple weeks later, Mr. You know, things tend to wind down. John's at the house. Dad comes home early from work. I hear his keys jingle really quickly. He was really quick with the double door. Sitch, got in the house. I was like, you gotta run, you gotta run, you gotta run, you gotta go. But this time, the Sister Chenway diversion wasn't gonna work. He had to go, quick as he could. Fire drill, get out. But the other times Dad came home and I had him hide in the closet, even my dad's room closet. I was like, come on now, let's go. It's kind of like underground world type shit. So, hey, I had to get my freak on. I was like 15. So what ends up happening is my dad's like, is that a boy running out the back door? Because the neighbor's dog, Angel, more like demon, starts like, arr, 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 arr. and all you see is a leg. I saw my dad's looking at this leg, just hopping over the gate, running to the next house or two over. Hey, who's that? Who's that? The dog just like, rah, 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 just rabbit. Dad goes, is that boy running out the house? I said, uh, uh, yeah. Why was he running out? Uh, I didn't want my cousins catching him. He's my book buddy, but they don't like him. They threatened to beat him up, so I told him to come around back. And he was like, he sat me down and said, I just want to ask you something, because that just made me sick to my stomach. Um, just thought about it, but what is your sexual preference? I said, I'm straight. He's like, but you know, being gay is not of God. I'm gonna talk to your mother about this, but just wanna make sure, okay? So my mom was much more harsh. She got home and gave me the nth degree. She's like, was it John that put that hickey on your neck and you said it was Kendra the other week? Was it really Kendra? Yes, mother. Yes, mother. So she asked me the question. She said, are you gay? I said, no, mom. You better not be out and raise no faggot. Took everything in me not to burst out in tears in front of her. So next day I get home from school and uh, the night before I just sat home and cried. Just looked up in my bed, staring at the ceiling, wondering if they loved me, if God loved me, if anybody would ever love me. And uh, took some Tylenol, but standard dosage. It said maybe a couple more thinking, eh, maybe this will do it. But it was a very shoddy attempt. I'm grateful it was shoddy because I'm still here. But it was the moment I knew. I asked God to take it away from me, and God didn't answer those prayers. But that was the time that, the time I spent with John slowly came to an end. Soon after, he got really jealous of the academic success, the scholarship offers, he lied about there being other guys, he made comments about my body, calling me awkward, pudgy, anything he could to put me down because he thought that would control me and keep me with him and he felt threatened. So here I am dealing with hearing in the pulpit that God should act as he did back in the Sodom and Gomorrah days and kill all the gays because Massachusetts had just passed gay marriage. I've internalized all that stuff, not only with a guy, church at home, I had to look inward and start figuring out how do I get through this thing called life?
how do I be happy? How do I find community? I looked on the internet, got involved in chat rooms, even did track practice in high school. I did everything I could to try to find that love again. So fast forward 15 years later, I hadn't seen John since, and this is where the story ends. Because maybe heard from him over Facebook about 10 years ago. So the story comes back actually to 2018, so actually a couple years ago. But 2008 was the last time I heard from him. He was on Facebook and found me and said, hey, the message, just found you. My mom's been you know, talking about you, asking how you're doing and stuff. It's been a couple years since you graduated from you know, the school. By the way, I need some ass. I'm like, that's a way to greet somebody you haven't talked to in at least five years. You need some ass. Do you not remember why we broke up? You were a fuck boy. So I was like, uh, excuse me, I need you to come correct. Oh, I'm sorry, I just missed you. You know, we used to have some good times in your house before, you know, before your dad called me run out the back gate in the alley. Um, but come over, let me get some ass. I'm like, oh God, block. <laughs> Never talk to him again. Next time I saw him, I was on a first date with a really cool guy and uh, shot me from Tate, Chicago. Derek, Derek, Derek. And I'm like, guy was with us like, I think someone's trying to call you. I said, this is Tate, Chicago. There are about 200,000 people out here. It could be any Derek. <laughs> so shade was real. So a couple weeks ago, I'm at Sidetrack, just chilling with my friends, celebrating a new job I just got because I just gave no figure to corporate yesterday. So I got more time to write. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so I get to do that love full time, uh, PR for a media company, and do my writing, my book. So here I am, almost 30, chilling at a bar with my friend, and I get a tap from a guy who comes over my shoulder, looking good, Mr. Clifton. I was like, how do you know my last name? And I looked at him in the face, he's like, we went to school together, do you remember me? At this point, the awkward, Teenager that had bifocals, was quiet, and really sturdy built, was a thinner built guy, no glasses, and a bunch of dreadlocks. And I said, oh my God. I'm, the name's on the tip of my tongue, but you gotta help me. He's like, it's John. I said, what? I haven't seen you in 15 whole years. How you doing? Oh, I'm fine, I'm visiting from New York. Um, how have you been? I know my mom asked about you the other day and or other week, and yeah, it's been a long time. Do you keep in touch with some of the same people? Yeah, I do. What are you doing now? I work uh, in LGBT youth homelessness prevention. I'm trying to move back to Chicago for a job. I said, that's wonderful. I do writing about those kinds of topics. Oh, yeah, I, was, I, I know I was looking for you at some time ago. Um, how do I find your writing and stuff? And I said, oh, it's pretty easy. You just go on Google. You just Google me. And he was like, oh, really? I mean, but there's probably like a thousand or so Derek Clifton's out there. Do I search Derek Clifton, Chicago, Illinois? Or certain place you write? Like, whatever you write for? How do I find you? And I said, honey, I don't want to be like Tiana Taylor, but if you Google me, I'm the top four pages of results. <laughs> Trust me, that was a fun way to run into an asshole Lex. But afterwards, I kind of felt for him. Because it was kind of like that moment in Moonlight where Chiron and his love interest from high school, they get separated, running to each other again later in life. And the other guy looks at him being someone he's totally not and says, who are you? I had that moment with him. 
It was brief, but it was a moment in which I saw we both found our way in our own ways. We weren't meant to be on each other's journey, but we found our own ways to doing what we love, being open and out, being black queer folks, and trying to help the community all the same in different ways. So even though he was an asshole yet again, my heart and my empathy overshadowed my desire to be that ex who got to come up and it's kind of like when you're at a 10-year high school reunion, everybody's comparing what they did and kind of being kind of circle jerky about it. I didn't want to be that way. It's not the way I was raised to be. But I saw who he had become. I reflected on who I became. And ultimately, I smiled. We found our love in our own ways. That's it. Last bit, shameless plug. Uh, if you want to follow my writing or keep in touch about the upcoming book, uh, which I promise be a lot more structured than that story, but when you when you're live, I don't like to like just read a text because that gets boring, right? Like anybody can read a text, but when you're in person, you're having a conversation. I kind of like talking and storytelling, like you're at a bar and having a drink and shooting the breeze. So I think that's a lot more real. So. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash Derek Clifton Writer. I'm also on Twitter at Derek Clifton. And uh, my new to be, soon to be relaunched website, DerekClifton.com, will be live in the next month or so. So stay tuned. Thanks again. And I uh, hope you all have an enjoyable evening and looking forward to the rest of the night. Thanks. And I'm going to say, let's hear one more time for Derek Clifton. We're going to take a short break uh, while we get things set up here for Kim. So just a very short break. Thank you. Well, I would thank Derek, but he's yeah. drinking a drink, so I guess we'll, we'll pause on that. Because, uh, the two people who don't know me, I'm And uh, I always love to start out with a little bit of uh, the man in black.
it, but that song is a little bit more uh, muted. Uh, so this next song is is an original tune, and uh, I guess much like Derek, this was like my bisexual cover period. The song is actually called Boys and Girls, and at the time I was waffling with liking Boys and Girls, but it was all very covered and very hidden um, because I was very much in the closet. Uh, but there was this girl who saw herself as my mentor, my queer mentor, and she was going to pull me out of the closet kicking and screaming, and I was so deep <laughs> in the closet that I was finding Christmas gifts from 10 years ago, as she liked to say. And so uh, this song has a little lyrical uh, tips of the hat to her.
uh, aforementioned in the last song, was just generally a really toxic person. And it's one of those things where you know in the time they're toxic, you need to move on, but you're still very held by them. And so uh, this song is called Whatever You Want Me To Be. Um, because at that point, whatever she told me to be, I, I could. I could be that person. <laughs> Thank you. 
Catholic school alum here. So for those um, all girls Catholic high school, that works well when you're gay. So this is a this is a Bruce Springsteen tune. Thank you. 
this is another original tune. Um, it's called Looking for a Friend. Um, actually, the title was inspired by, there was like that dumb Steve Carell movie that came out like a million years ago. Or not a million years ago, it was like And I don't think I even saw the movie, but I was like, that's such a great title for a song. And uh, this, is, this is what came out of that. <laughs>
So a thing that I often like to do is say, hey, I like this song, how can I make it completely different? <laughs> and so uh, in the early 2000s, there was that kind of glam rock resurgence, if you remember, and there was that band, The Darkness, you know, that song, yeah. I believe in a thing called love, and like, just like, like leather pants and just like very, this is like the opposite of leather pants version of, of that song. This is like the country toying version of I Believe in a Thing Called Love.
find me on uh, YouTube, Facebook. I have a full-length album. I have an EP. Uh, this song is on the EP. Um, it's a song called Brothers to Arms, and it is an anti-war song. Woo. And I always have to end with this one because there's no coming back from this tune. <laughs>
contribute to the tip charge right over there and let's see the next show is uh, April 17th and who do we have performing Jared Neal and Mark Anderson will be performing at that show so um, hope you can stop into that one and uh, thanks for stopping into this one good night <laughs>